Hello and welcome to uh, the Adjutants' Lounge. Um, today we are we've reached part eight of the Russian way of war. Um, today joining me I have Dr. Philip Blood. Phil. Good afternoon. Uh, Dustin Duquesne. Dustin. Hi who's a legal counsel. And for those of you who've listened to the podcast in the past, we have got um, Nick Budd joining us today. Nick, welcome. Hi, guys. Hi. Nice to be here. Thank you. Um, now, over, over the past sort of few weeks, there's been a lot of discussion around genocide. And this, this has been quite an important topic of discussion because it, it's very clearly happening. Um, but today we're going to be sort of developing a theme, as it were, and looking at the war in the wider, wider um, the sense of what's actually going on, um, and this was this was summed up. I think it might have been by, by yourself, Dustin. Um, the, the question we're going to be asking today is for the Ukrainians: What is the win? And it sounds ambiguous, <laughs> quite quite around, but this will sort of bring in a, 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 quite a few bits and pieces of information, and hopefully provide you all with a, a very a very good podcast. Um, so, but before we sort of do that. Um, I think it would be best if Nick sort of starts today's discussion because Nick's been in contact with um, Ukrainians on, on the ground and has a perspective that I certainly lack um, with, with what's happening. Uh, Nick, are you happy to discuss this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A absolutely. <clears throat> um, I suppose, yeah, I, 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 I come from a... Yeah, a reasonably different perspective just through what little insight I understand of what's been happening in Ukraine um, beyond reading historian and defence analysts um, assessments, which largely on, on Twitter um, uh, that cover aspects such as urban warfare, logistics, um, retired um, military from, from Britain and, and the US. Um, and, and their views on the war, and and that just comes from, you know, yeah, the understanding that I I know um, a few people in Ukraine from you know uh, several cities. Um, one that is obviously um, uh, has become a focus very early on, uh, certainly from the second third of March when it was surrounded, which is Mariupol. Um, um, is still bearing the brunt of, of Russian aggression in the northeast of the country, uh, you know, only, what, 30, 40 kilometres from, from the Russian border, um, but the Belgorod Oblast, and then back to Kyiv and down to uh, Odessa, um, which again seems rather vogue at the moment, especially with regards to the, you know, the, the most recent information on a, potentially another Russian warship being, being hit. But, um, and, and so, Knowing these people, it, it was um, my my interest first and foremost was was the safety of those people, those friends that I I, I knew there. Um, I can remember setting my alarm clock. What was it back on the twenty fourth of February um, when all the pointers were indicating that Russia would invade Ukraine on the twenty fourth of February and. Um, indeed, I think they pinned it down to a certain time, um, which was early in the morning of the 24th of February, from recollection, and, and, and I think that came from clearly US or, or you know, and Western intelligence. So I set my alarm 
woke up at four o'clock in the morning and um, started doom scrolling on my Twitter feed and was genuinely emotionally it was a sucker punch to the to the stomach because I knew I had friends there. I, I've clearly got friends there and war as we have not experienced it in, in Europe for many decades appeared to have started. And the first thing I did was um, just go outside and, and have a cigarette. And um, yeah, there's a few tears in my eyes as well because it was, are these people that, that, I, that I know, how are they going to be affected? Are they literally going to survive the war? Um, and so I suppose I was actually, actually uh, it sounds a bit pathetic perhaps, but I was in a little bit of shock, even though I guessed it was coming, um, just with regards to the impact it may have on these people. So yeah, that, that, that was my very early thoughts on, 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 on the war from, from, I guess, just a, a humane relationship perspective that I'd had a through people, um, I'd worked with previously over here and, and friends of, of them who, who were in Ukraine. From speaking with um, sort of the, the contacts you have on the ground, what, what has been the what has been perhaps more recently the feeling of of, of how things are going there? Um, well, I suppose I can I certainly give you the, the, the most recent the most recent feeling, but I think it's what provides some some good context is the early feelings as well, though just to just to be able to see from the way I've interpreted the 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 the, 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 the change in mood and. Originally, I would say that the mood was one of clearly, God damn it, this mad person in Russia, i.e. Putin, has actually done, undertaken what appears to be an excessive, um, an excessive aggressive um, action towards, uh, towards Ukraine. Um, but I think there was... In addition to that, my God, he's done it. And there was this dawning realization that actually it, it, it does, you know, it, it appeared to be affecting far more of Ukraine, certainly in the northeast and and the north and the northwest, um, uh, than what they were used to over eight eight years since 2014, where it was simply confined to, to the east. And the attitudes from those who I knew in the east, i.e., the Donbass. Um, through to Russian-speaking cities such as Kharkiv and indeed Kyiv, which is very Russian-speaking as well. Um, there, there were different attitudes from the start, whereas in the East, they were completely used to war. And indeed, um, my good friend in Mariupol, she was largely sceptical that war was ever going to happen, despite me having discussions with them about um, about the the vast buildup across uh, many parts of the Russian-Ukraine border, and whereas the mood in further west, particularly in Kiev and Odessa, was oh they were a bit more concerned. They were a bit more concerned because they hadn't experienced the war in the way those in the Donbass had experienced war for so long, and so there was a distinct cut a slightly you know a demarcation in, in thought process from those people that i knew <clears throat> and after um i would say the first four weeks was very much a view that 
the Russians are, you know, are evil. The terminology that many Ukrainians use are orcs, you know, um, and in, in terms of perhaps some, you know, the, the limited dehumanization language that I've seen from Ukrainians towards, uh, in, in contrast to Russian dehumanization about Ukrainians. And, but they were still very much, we're going to win this war. After that initial shock, it was very much, our army is going to win this war. Um, very confident, um, very bullish, very patriotic, um, I would say. And uh, that, that was, that was the, the, key, the, the key element, um, or the thought process. Again, I, I you know, caveat this, with a few people that I knew out there, albeit within a number of cities within Ukraine. And but then beyond beyond that, I would say between that that first month and going in towards the end of the second month, the mood changed. Um, and I think the mood changed on the basis that realization um, of um, of the destruction that cities had received that perhaps they necessarily weren't expecting to have received. Um, certainly, Kharkiv to an extent, clearly Kiev less so Odessa at the time, um, the mood changed from we're going to win this war and, and uh, you know, sort of very bullish and just to the point of natural patriotism, I, I suppose, um, in our boys will win, changed to, uh, a, a, I think, a more um, realistic understanding that this war is going to go on longer than what most of them said to me they thought was going to be three months. They were talking about me popping it, you know, you must come over in the summer when the war's finished. Um, two or three of them said that to me. And I didn't actually say that I thought the war was going to be finished uh, by the summer because I didn't believe that. Um, but the mood had changed. And I think now in this sort of what is effectively, uh, how many days are we into it? Day, day 70 something now into this. So we're well into the third month. The mood seems to now be it's a way of life and I'm they would just say yeah it's we've had x amount of we've had x amount of missiles or or you know or bombs directed at the city um or uh which we're, we're just really getting on on with things now and it has clearly evolved as one might have expect over those three months to a point now whereby it's a way of life, but also an acceptance that um, how long is this going to go on for? And certainly, I think the realisation seems to be, or the expectation seems to be, that it's go on for significantly more months than what they were originally thinking. <clears throat> when, when speaking with Pete, you know, with 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 your sort of friends in in Ukraine. Um, how did they perceive? What, what is what is the perception on the ground of, of what would be winning? I suppose would be the, the best way of putting it. How do they feel they can achieve an overall victory, perhaps? Um, I suppose that that's not not a question I've actually di directly asked any of them. Um, but coming out in the general gist of the conversations, I would say that the first the first key point for them about winning the war was support from the West. And they need support from, they need, you know, um, and I guess they got this from clearly their own, their own media, their own government messaging, that they needed support from the West. They would, in the end, 
they were genuinely grateful for, especially in that early that, that first month when we saw the EU um, and NATO supplying, um, I, I guess, smaller arms um, and money potentially for prosecuting the war, um, for humanitarian aid, um, humanitarian supplies, etc. They they all were talking about the closing of the sky, which was a big debate in that first month. Um, and I knew that, you know, NATO, it would be very difficult for NATO to be able to 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 commit to that um, without a, a vast escalation. So but that was that was one. I think that that's a that, that's a valid. That's a valid piece of feedback that I got. We need Western support it, to be able to win this war. And then in terms of perhaps me extrapolating what they were saying to me the it seemed to be that their their version of winning the war was to remove russia russian troops back to at least that the the, the positions that existed um prior to the invasion uh, of ukraine in, in on february 24th again not a specific question but definitely that was you know, we need to get these. We need we need to push these people out um, back to back to where we were. And uh, of course, and that was uh, by definition uh, the areas of Luhansk and and the Donbass and the People's Republics that were set up post 2014. And also, um, you know, back to bottling up Russian troops back in in Crimea. That was their. That was what I would suggest were the two key elements of winning support from the west and removing russia from the newly occupied lands of of, of ukraine well, it's, it's interesting you mention about um crimea donbass and Luhansk because there's there's been a lot of talk hasn't there and about a trying you know where where would Russian troops withdraw back to? Do they withdraw back to the front lines in 2014, or would Ukraine as a whole um, accept to withdraw back to the the lines of departure um, pre 24th of February? I mean, are they? Do you get the feeling that there's this there's this sort of shifting willingness to perhaps accept the latter rather than the former? as an aim of, of achieving possible outcome for them? For, for I, I think post the withdrawal retreat, however we want to describe the Russian um, sort of strategic removal from the northwest and northeast of, of Kyiv, post that and when we started understanding the, the the reality of occupied Ukrainian land, such as the regions is uh, was it Cherniv in in the northeast, um, Bucha, um, Erpin. Um, I remember having one conversation specifically with a friend in Kiev, and they mentioned to me that I think there's I, I don't think Ukraine is easy for me to understand politically um, exactly but they don't fall into a, a, um, for me a neat binary um, 
supporter of Zelensky or not. And but and so when you have the mix of, of Russian speakers, uh, Ukrainian speakers there, um, a friend put it to me that post that withdrawal from Kyiv and the 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 knowledge that there were very much some horrific war crimes being undertaken in areas in the suburbs of Kyiv and beyond. They, she, this lady in particular said to me that even friends who she knew previously from the east, from Donbass, Luhansk, and other people that she would know in Kyiv, the view had hardened to, whereas they weren't particularly bothered about some were not particularly bothered about the Donbass and even attempting to reclaim the Donbass or the Hansk um, regions. It hardened after that to the point whereby, as as one would might as one would perhaps imagine, if this happened here in the UK, when the the brutality and the war crimes were becoming um, evident, they was they were suggesting that with the people they knew. The opinion was hardening towards we need to remove these people back out of Donbass and, and Luhansk. Um, so I don't know if that adequately answers your question, but certainly that was one person. And and I would just say that most Ukrainians I speak to know of know of people in the east that are under the you know the, the jurisdiction of the, the next People's Republic and the Hansk People's Republic, and also uh, of people that they know in 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 Russia, um, Ukrainians who are in Russia just across the border, in if you like, in Belgorod Oblast. But at the very least, my interpretation is they want them removed back to 2014 lines, and there are certainly some now that that want them removed from Crimea proper. And for me, if I tried to put myself in in their in their shoes, I could entirely understand them wanting Russia removed entirely from Ukraine. Um, but of course, you know, the prag pragmatically is that is that going to be achieved? Um, personally um, speaking, I very much doubt it. Okay, but chaps, uh, Phil Dustin. Listening to sort of what Nick's been saying, um, you know, just recounting the experiences on the ground there. How how does that shape considerations? As I'm trying to find the best way to describe it to, to sum it up. How 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 what would your reflections be on on those comments? Um, thank Yeah, I mean, two minds here. I understand what Nick's saying, obviously. You want to see the Ukrainian people getting their lives back together. That, that I totally agree. Politics is, um, politics is an ugly game. And um, we've had a situation where Putin invaded the Crimea and has occupied this area. And that's, that occupation has been going on for a very long time. So when we say 
go back to those original lines of 2014 or 2008 because there was conflicts going on before, um, what happens to the people who are there now? Um, who are happy to have Putin in, in their living space. And, and th that's the complication with these kind of conflicts. It was the complication in Yugoslavia and again in the same complication. I think the big problem we have is, is a great many people, a great many countries involved in this war who are pushing Ukraine towards wanting to accept certain outcomes. And I'm not sure every time that it's interest, it's within the interest of the Ukrainian people. And let me explain that. Okay, so you give the Ukrainian people an opportunity to carry on fighting. I, I think that's good. I think that's important. But at some point, and, and this has been discussed in previous, in previous podcasts, at some point, the country then becomes a testing ground for modern weaponry. And then, and then the politics steps in and the whole new range of war aims, battle aims, community aims, cultural aims, social aims. And we, and we move further and further away from what the ideal outcome is. I, from the very beginning, if you, if you go back to what Nick was saying when the first operations occurred on the 24th of February, my, my first concern was if the Russians are going to drop bombardment, they're dropping bombardment on civilian communities of, of, the, of dense population. Now that damage that was done to those dense populations could not easily be addressed. And what followed up afterwards, and we've seen the war crimes, so, and, and we know people, I've, I've made the comment that this is a form of genocide. How do you work back from that? So not only do you have the war aims, but how do you have any kind of um, political reconciliation in a situation where there's been genocide and war crimes? So the, when, we, when everybody's talking about, oh, the Ukrainians must win, I'd be, it, it's very difficult to understand what's the win. Is it not only to get their country back, but is it also to prosecute Putin in the Hague War Crimes Centre? all of these Russian officers to be put before the, the war crimes trials. And then we're in that game of, well, OK, can we prove it? Yes, there is evidence. So here's the evidence. The Russians deny it. Will the Russians release those officers for prosecution? We had that whole problem in the Yugoslavian period, and I think only one person, just one person, was prosecuted um, before 1999. And so you start scaling what, what the war aims are, what, what's the win? And I'm not 100% sure that we all really understand what this win is going to be. If Ukraine gets the country, dial back again, if the, if the Ukraine gets all the country back that's been lost and all of it is shattered ruin, completely bombed away, it, that's going to take decades to recover. And what happens to the people who then get pushed out and pushed into Russia? 
And we then cause in an another counter uh, crime by pushing people out of their homes because they've lived there for 10 years or however long. We get into a very, very confusing situation. And in all of this, all the different nationalisms are playing against each other. So you've got the Ukrainian nationalism, you've got the Americans, you've got the British, you've got the European Union, you've got Germany, you've got Finland now getting involved and Sweden going to Europe, to NATO. It's getting ever so confused and we're losing what the original win should should be, which is not just to get the people home, but to get the Russians out. And how do you get the Russians out? Are they going to withdraw? Are they going to leave the Donbass? They've, they've actually been fighting in the Donbass since 2014. That's a, that's a long old war. That's a really, and in just, as you were speaking, I was making a few notes there, and then it was your, it was your last, your last statement. How do we get the Russians out? It, it's, uh, there, there are similarities in what's going on, in some respects, what happened in Yugoslavia. But we're also in very, very much uncharted charted territory. With the possibility um, of the removal of, of Russian forces, you know, the, the Ukrainians are Ukrainian, are absolutely adamant that they want their territory back. So th this is, you know, we, we this is a. So if you if you if you if you take the flags away and denationalize it and just make it about the civilians, then obviously the thing is to do is to get people back to their homes. Take take out all the nationality. The nationalities, all this nationalism, all this flag waving is yeah. confusing the situation. This is all about Europeans. And I don't care about the Americans being involved. All they're doing is complicating the situation for their own political interests. What we should be doing as Europeans is constructing a European map so that the people who are losing their homes, especially the refugees who have been forced out of their houses, get their homes back. OK, you can't get your house back because it's been flattened on the Russian artillery. Well, at least you can get your land back. And I would put it into the context of Europeans in a European community and address it from that perspective. And OK, it, that's not going to be perfect for Europe, Ukrainians. It's not going to be perfect for Russians. But I think if we take it out of the flag waving scenario and put it down to humanitarian interests and needs and what's best for people, then perhaps that's a better way to go. Dustin, what what are, what are your thoughts on this chap? Um, I started discussing the Ukrainian war seriously after a couple of days of uh, reading Twitter, watching the news, and uh, browsing websites um, during a period of war which I would call the like war, the like phase of war where we had social media full of happy Ukrainians resisting against the Russians. And we had uh, not only tractors, but we had um, kids throwing Molotov cocktails, kids 
filling up Molotov cocktails. Uh, uh, normal Ukrainians uh, grabbing weapons out of trucks to fight uh, the Russians. And all the images we were getting was uh, were of uh, Ukrainian resistance and Ukrainian victory. And an Ukrainian lady replying to a friend of ours who was saying, uh, we don't know what's going to happen in the next part of the war. She wrote to him, what do you mean? Ukraine has won this war. Russia has lost. And I was four days in. And I just went, if the Ukrainians are even saying this, and this is a lady in Ukraine saying this, something that needs to be addressed in the information space, the need to define uh, what winning is. And I was, I started thinking, based on my knowledge of previous conflicts and wars and Holocaust, I started thinking, what does winning mean? And as Nick was saying, the perception, the definition of winning changes over time, because I think in um, February 28th, if the Ukrainians had pushed the Russians back uh, to the borders on the 24th and signed the Minsk Free Agreement, which would go to repeat the previous two pieces of paper, then that would be treated as a win. But after Russia has uh, steamrolled uh, Mariupol, annihilated the city, and then murdered all those people in Butcher. I can't see a peace that would be acceptable for the Ukrainian people. I could be wrong. I think Nick uh, has more input on this, a uh, better opinion on this, uh, and more information. I don't think there is a peace that could be acceptable without Russia being pushed out, at least in the east, completely out of Ukraine. Uh, Crimea is a lot more difficult because I don't see any way militarily that Ukraine can push uh, Russia out of Ukraine, out of Crimea. That's terrible terrain to attack from the north. Um, and if Zelensky was tomorrow to sign a Minsk free and say, well, Russia, you can, even, even if you sign a, a Minsk free that would see Russia returning to the February 24th borders, he would be out the next day. There would be a coup, or he'd be shot, or he'd be out in the next election, he, or he would be forced to resign. So winning, as, uh, winning now means, I think for Ukrainians, pushing the Russians completely out. But is that a victory? Because their country, the parts that the Russians have reached, has been devastated. What the Russians haven't blown up, they've stolen. And they're stealing grain, as you've discussed, Ben. They're stealing tractors, uh, they're stealing TVs, they're stealing uh, cars, raping the women, and crucifying the corgis. If Ukraine joins the European Union, the German taxpayer will be paying to rebuild Ukraine for the next 30 years. So what's winning? 
Russia's never going to pay reparations. Putin's going to stay in power. Russia's still going to have nuclear weapons. Even if he's toppled, that just leaves a horrible power vacuum in Russia and some, somebody madder than him will have access to the nuclear arsenal. Mariupol doesn't exist. Crimea is Russia. I don't see Ukraine ever getting Crimea back or getting back uh, the east, uh, the area around the Sea of Azov. So what's winning? Um, just, just a thought that I, you know, as, as I was sort of talking, I'm scribbling. Um, and I know we've said that you know Ukraine, Ukrainians have been very have been adamant about no splitting of territory. But looking at you know in the past where there has been similar-ish situations, especially in former Yugoslavia, where there, there there's had to be that sort of division of state. Would that in taking off those parts in sort of Donetsk and Luhansk and Crimea, you know, would that be perhaps the more, would that be the perhaps the, the, the more politically shrewd direction in which any ceasefire um, could be aimed at achieving, you know, could be aimed at achieving? Would that be politically more palatable for the international community? Probably, but. That's suicide for Zelensky. That's suicide My... for Ukraine. Yeah. If Ukraine is pizza-based... Salami. Salami slices, isn't it? Um, it, it's, it's finished. Because the next generation of Russians after Putin will do the same. It's an impossible situation. If you, if you give him land, if you settle for lost land, that lost land will become a platform for future war. That's a very good point. It's what he does in Georgia, it's what he did in um, Chechnya. You're negotiating with somebody who's never going to keep his word. He signs a piece of paper and he's already reinvading you can't do business with Putin. That's that's that's. It's impossible to do diplomatic work with Putin because he will always go what's with the interest. So it's always win-win him. It's never win-win. It's only win for him. Can you do ever do business with Russia? No. <laughs> As a Slav, I'm asking that. <laughs> they didn't get to be the biggest country in the world by being nice. <laughs> it's the history of Russia's relentless expansion since ever since the they kicked the Mongols out. Did that? That's the same now. I, but there's complicated factors still involved because even if even if they push, even if people push. The, Russian, the, the Russians out of the entirety of the Ukraine. Those people who are pushed out of the Ukraine will become martyrs to the new cause. The existence of Ukraine, Belarus, uh, the Baltics is a personal insult to the Russian nation. Yeah. 
Yeah, Pete, Pete, a certain king had a lot, got a lot to answer for, hasn't he? <laughs> it's, and it's interesting you, you make that point, Dustin, um, because that, that has been something. It, it seems to have slackened off over the past few weeks. I noticed that Patriarch Kirill was, was really pushing this sort of um, reintegration of the Baltics back into the, the bosom of Mother Russia. Quite, He was pushing that quite heavily for a few weeks, especially in the run up to Easter. Um, and Pasha, uh, more importantly, and post-Pasha, that seems to have died down, that rhetoric. And in fact, he's been very quiet of late. Um, I mean, is that ind indicative of anything, perhaps? I, I don't know. Um, Nick, is there anger in the people that you're speaking to? Are they angry? And who are they angry at? Nick, you're muted, chap. He was on and he was off again, Nick. I don't know what you just pressed then. Your mute came off again. You muted yourself, Nick. There we go. Here we go. There Sorry, go. guys. Uh, technical uh, problems. It must be the um, kefir natural drink that I'm drinking is more alcoholic <laughs> than I anticipated. You need um, some beetroot in that. Well, I just say, at least, it's not, <laughs> at least it's not beetroot juice. And that's the first time I've got that on the pod. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, is so Dustin asks, is there anger? Um, with one particular person, there has been towards, but but there, and that's my friend from Mariupol who is now, um, who thankfully got out, touch wood, um, at the end of March, um, and only got in contact with them again recently. Um, but they I would, they are angry at both sides, but this person is particularly, in my conversations with them before this war started, as they, they lived in Mariupol, and again, they were very dismissive of the concern that was being exhibited as far as they saw in the rest of Ukraine. They didn't believe it was going to happen because, as they said, in Mariupol, they lived with, oh, what was it at the time, back in 2014, they lost around 150 people dead in Mariupol before um, the Russian proxy forces were forced out effectively by the Azov battalion, uh, as they were at the time. And they have a view that both politicians always bring bad news, um, whether that's Putin, whether that's Zelensky. And they were rather ambivalent with regards to any side, although they definitely knew they did not want to be part of Russia. And since I spoke to, to this person, they've been, they were quite angry with regards to how 
Zelensky is now viewed by the world. Um, they actually think that he's still an idiot. Um, let, I guess we have to go back and think. remember that he was polling something between 25 and 35 percent in terms of popularity just before the, the invasion, because and I've noticed from many Ukrainian reporters and commentators that that I've been following that they were also questionable about Zelensky as a, as a president, in particular with regards to his domestic policies at the time. Um, but the other side, the caveat to this person's anger at the moment and what happened in Mariupol and what they experienced in Mariupol and what is happening largely across Ukraine, I'll be honest and just say I don't actually know how truthful this person's opinion is at the, at the time being. And the reason why is because they are in Berdyansk, right. which is effectively now the, the, the you know Donetsk People's Republic. Um, and that's how they are referring to it at the moment. So it's under Russian occupation. And given what Dustin has spoken about from probably the first week in of, of the war in Ukraine, he was warning of, you know, hit lists, uh, monitoring of communication channels. And we've, you know, I, I, I think we've seen that indeed, you know, the, the Roskvardia, is it the Russian National Guard and, and other, um, is it the FSB have been going through occupied towns and clearly removing um, local government leaders um, and some have been swapped back in pr prisoner exchanges but we know that some have been murdered um, and so at the moment I treat the the commentary that's come back from my friend who's from Mariupol to Berdyansk I have to have caution over how they particularly feel about with regards to anger and emotion. That being said, it is broadly consistent with the discussions that I had with them before the war, um, uh, in which they were trying to explain to me the, the, the difference between east of Ukraine and, 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 and other areas of Ukraine and how people viewed the, the, the ongoing conflict with, with Ukraine, uh, with Russia. Um, but again, it is it it's it's still in context and in consistent with broadly what they told me before. Um, but I don't know if that person, if it's true how they present their feelings to me, whether they are a statistical outlier in context with the other people that I know. Um, but Justin did he's and 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 Philip, I think, and um, again picked up on perhaps what we were discussing perhaps prior to the pod is the definition of, of of what this win would be for Ukraine and I suppose my question is other than perhaps we all might bring some insight to the table I think probably only Dustin is really aware of the Slavic mind in certainly in comparison to myself um, and the more I've got to understand Ukrainian people, 
is the more complex the actual relationship between Ukrainian people and politics and their culture is. And I think that's I think that's largely missing in the broader debates that we see from supposedly authoritative people in the media and social media um, that I don't I think there's 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 almost an arrogance um, that we we believe and we I'm talking about the West, whether that encompasses you know, Europe, the EU, NATO, the US. I think for me, there is an, an arrogance that we or certainly a lack of depth of understanding of how we are trying to understand what the Ukrainians believe a win would be. And um, but again, I can only I can only fall back on broadly. You know, the the conversations I've had with probably up to about 10 people in Ukraine that, you know, their idea of a win is broadly get rid of the Russians. Um, but Dustin, I believe, is. I just I, I don't have any evidence to back this up, but I can only my my feel is that Zelensky is in a difficult position. Um, he's become very popular post the invasion, and I I tip my hat to him. Um, yeah, he has become de facto what appears to be a you know certainly a morale boosting and a, you know wartime leader. Um, but I think he's being, I think he is limited in the options that he has with regards to bringing a victory to the Ukrainian people. And um, I think Dustin's mentioned before to me in conversation that what happens out of Mariupol and the focus, which is, it's not just the Azov battalion that has been fighting there since 2014. There have been um, other regular Ukrainian armed forces there, including Marines. But the focus is very heavily, really, from a military perspective, on the performance and the resistance. Azov is an easy is an easy tag to place with Mariupol. And will Mariupol become a an an open sore and a poisonous ulcer with regards to how any potential peace or win is delivered by Zelensky and the Ukrainian government and their armed forces, depending on what that is, is it going to be viewed as, um, and, and I guess I'm, 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 I'm erring back to post-Germany World War One, a stab in the back type process, and will that expose nationalism um, in driving popular opinion in, in Ukraine for whatever Zelensky is and his armed forces are able to achieve, is that considered good enough by the by the Ukrainian people? And I don't believe that. Um, and I believe, actually, that Putin, uh, Putin's Russia and their armed forces, the way in which they prosecuted the war, including the what I would term the generic destruction of villages, towns and cities and infrastructure to the to what is clearly, as as both Dustin and Philip have, have said before, is going to be decades to put right. 
Um, and that's assuming that there is no further ongoing Russian-Ukrainian conflict, is not just that generic destruction, but the brutality and the war crimes and the deep supposed um, deportations of, uh, of Ukrainians to Russia. Has, was that part of Russian thinking in terms of did that again further limit, further narrow the solutions that Zelensky and the Ukrainian have, government have towards negotiating a peace or a win? Because I would suggest that it's clearly has pushed Ukrainian public opinion through to how could you know, it, 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 it's, it's all or nothing now. They have raped, they have murdered. And was that part of, was that an, a, a, a design by Russia to further narrow Zelensky's options and essentially destabilize Ukraine politically over the next five to 10 years? From the Russian war point of view, um, I would say, based on what's happened in previous wars since Afghanistan 1979, that it was deliberate. Um, it was deliberate for several reasons. The first was to force the Ukraine to fight, which might sound strange given what's happened with all the reports we've had of the Rus of the Ukraine's um, defeating the Russian soldiers and tanks and, and military equipment. But I do actually think that they forced them to fight, um, which is different from what happened after the Crimea and then the Donbass operations uh, in 2014 and then later 2018. That, that was more of a like a counterinsurgency conflict and developed into um, bands of regular fighters and mercenaries fighting each other for quite a long period of time. Um, what Putin did was to force a situation, but I also think that that was done also to put Europe and America in a, in a difficult position because it said, okay, you want to defend Europe, you want to defend NATO, this is what we're going to do to the Ukraine. And, and while it was partly as a punishment for crimes perceived by the Russians of what the Ukrainians had done, it was also an attack on America and American policy since probably since 9-11, if not before. Um, it was also an attack on NATO and to a certain extent NATO complacency. It was an attack on the arrogance of the European Union, which, you know, you only have to see what happened with Merkel um, and her strange relationship with Putin. That it, it was, um, so yes, I saw it as deliberate. I thought it was deliberate because it's a preemptive strike, which I think we have to consider in the future as a, as, as a in Europe as a, to be outlawed as a genocidal act, as a preemptive strike, it was de deliberately intended to cause as much damage, to cause as much as many refugees 
and as many casualties as possible in the shortest possible time. And that's that was achieved. And Mariupol was, was the end of that, well, the end of that first phase of that kind of bombardment and destruction. So to me, the Russian way of war hasn't changed. It's just got worse. Because now it's shifted away from pure military operations against military forces to military operations directed at civilian communities. That's what it does. That's exceptionally interesting because it it's actually it's also true. And this is something that's not been picked up by anyone else that I can, I, I, I can think of. Um, well, the evidence is before us, so it's not like we can escape. There's no debate now that, oh, well, maybe there might be some genocide because we don't know yet. I mean, we've got it. We're, we're confronting it. Uh, oh, no. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the, the evidence for a genocide it is one hundred percent there. Um, but no, your your comments, uh, you know, about a, this almost a vulgar display of power, if you will, by the by the sort of Putin and the Russians, um, and using Ukraine as almost as a theatre and a demonstration of the depth of both their depravity. And how far they are willing to push the destruction of a nation to maintain geopolitical status and power in, in you know, in, in sort of Eastern um, Europe. I think if I was to write a book on this, specifically on this, in about a decade's time, I'd say um, it was Putin's message to America. Um, I think the whole. Okay, there's all this fighting, and he's hiding behind um, Ukrainian quote Nazis and all of this stuff. But I do think that this was an attack on America, um, and he's using the Ukraine to whip America. Now that might sound crazy, um, but that's what happens with superpowers. The superpower. If you look what what America did to Russia, especially when it was a Soviet Union, um, it didn't do much different than what what's happening now. I mean, the Americans invaded allies of the Soviet Union, um, used heavy weapons, smashed a lot of um, communities. That that that's an evil thing, but that's what superpowers do. And we just assume that this is just the Russians on their own. In the past, they they were less, you know, they were they were aggressive, but not as aggressive as they as they have become. Um, before Afghanistan, interventions were a lot more controlled and managed. Since Afghanistan, they've become more and more violent. Now, my argument for that is a nation in decline. Historically, and I'm using historical references going all the way back to Imperial Germany, nations in decline will resort to extreme violence. It's compensation for the perception of losing power and losing control. And they will go to extreme violence. Hitler went to extreme violence very, very quickly. But he wasn't really the most powerful nation in the world. I mean, people think in 1939 he was, but if you look at the, the 
your military balance and the, and the formations, he wasn't that powerful. Britain and, Britain and France were much larger forces in, in, in nearly all areas. It's just that, okay, they managed to come up with a battle plan that was very effective and, and won a short-term victory in a few campaigns. But overall, Hitler's power was deflected in the end from attacking other nations to destroying the Jewish people. That's what they do. And the Soviet Union was very similar in its attacks all the way through the whole period from post-1945, post right the way up to Afghanistan and then 1992 when they stopped. And then afterwards, of punishing peoples and almost committing genocides against Jews. I mean, the Jewish programs have never really stopped, even with, even with the Soviet Union. And as, as um, Dustin said, they're a nation. They're, Russia's always been a nation of imperial imperial ambition. But if you have imperial even when they were declining under the Tsarist times, they were still trying to grow. And going to war in 1914, <laughs> only, only 10 years before, they'd been defeated in the Russo-Japanese War, and yet still they go to violence. And that's the nature of, of nations that are in decline. Um, and to a certain extent, I think American power is only sustained by the military-industrial complex. We know that America has had problems. And it resorts to heavy warfare. I mean, how America reacted to the Twin Towers was quite remarkable. When we think back now, 20 years ago, and the superpowers have, have struggled to come to terms with, with modern times. And of course, now they're all, you know, in, in, in America, they're still trying to recover from the age of counterinsurgency, which are now revamping into the Ukraine war, which I think is a big mistake. So I think it's a big mistake for the West. We're dealing with a declining power that's using extreme violence. What's the standard solutions for it? You either go to war or you try and find a settlement. And I think... So long as Putin's in power, so long as he's got military assets, he's going to continue fighting. And that's the thing, isn't he? He will. And I, and I think that there, there is absolutely, there's no, there's no visible shift of anything but carrying on the fight from, you know, um, from Russia. In, in a way, shape, or form, there is this desire to carry on punching, isn't there? Well, the more yeah. refugees he pushes into the West, the more the Western economy starts to falter. That's his thinking. You know, it's not just the refugees coming across, it's the oil, it's the gas. You know. So, it's, yeah, it, 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 it's going to be interesting and, and it's certainly we, we've sort of almost led ourselves there to the next topic of discussion um well i know we have touched on it in the past you know uh putin's intentions um and this sort of actually you know the next question should be well perhaps we shouldn't be looking at how ukraine could win the war it should be how can we how can we 
stop Putin. Because there, there is, uh, as, as the discussions are going on, allied to, to sort of increasing information that we're getting as best as we can. The, you know, he's still going. The violence is still there. The violence has been ramped up severely in a lot of cases. Um, are we at this stage now where perhaps direct intervention is perhaps going to be the only way in which we can prevent further escalation beyond the borders of Ukraine? Yeah, that's a bit of a question, isn't it? I suppose, you know, given that, um, you know, but um, if if we're talking about if the question is how how do we stop Putin, um, I'm not sure as myself. I'm not sure that the West, NATO, the EU, the US, that conglomerate of different organisations. And, and geographical countries, we we can't we we can't remove him. We can't stop him without escalation. To which I would suggest that we just simply do not want want to um, to consider, um, which is regime change, um, and you know, and Russia is a nuclear power, and I don't think there's ever any intention ever to to want to be able to un undertake at least overtly regime change within Russia um, simply because of its even though as 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 Phil was saying it's a, a declining power um, and perhaps this is becoming this is an illustration perversely of its or paradoxically of its declining power um, I, that's 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 just not surely uh, a tenable proposition um, for us to be able to stop Putin because I can only ever I can only ever see one reason for stop or one solution to stopping Putin and that is raising change yeah yeah Dustin I mean what, what are your thoughts on this I don't see um regime change that would make the world a better place. Um, if Putin gets a bullet in the head from a general tomorrow, that means there's going to be a general running Russia. If Putin is toppled by an oligarch, that means another oligarch younger, more energetic. And you know my thoughts on Navalny. I just think he's a, perhaps a more honest Russian nationalist. For now, he might be more honest because Putin, well, he was a, he was a KGB agent and, uh, and friends with a lot of criminals, but he wasn't so obscenely corrupt when he came into power now he's he's he may be the richest man in the world in the world and by twitter tomorrow uh, but i don't see any option for 
regime change in Russia, that would not uh, end tragically for the world. Imagine Russia dissolving into lots of little states, each with a nuke or two. That was a great fear for the US and the West when the Soviet Union was falling apart. They were Everybody was absolutely terrified about some tin pot dictator in Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan or whatever stand getting uh, nuclear weapons. That led to uh, Russia being uh, given the USSR's spot on the Security Council, Russia being supported, Russia being courted, and also led to uh, my favorite uh, pieces of paper, the Budapest memorandums for Belarus and Ukraine, which weren't about security guarantees, they're about getting nuclear weapons away from um, successor states. Now imagine the civil war breaks out in Russia because of a failed because of failed invasion in Ukraine, and you've got uh, Leningrad Stan versus Muscovy versus uh, the Republic of uh, Vladivostok. And they've all got tanks and they've all got nukes and they're fighting each other. That's terrible. And even if Navalny comes into power tomorrow and he's ruling over a unified, stable, rich Russia with zero corruption, He's not going to implement an educational program saying, well, actually, throughout history, we've just enslaved and genocided our neighbors. No, he's going to, he's still going to say Russia is the world, it's the best country in the world, and we have this wonderful mission to make everybody, especially every Slav, just a good little Russian. And, um, Russian Orthodox Church will support him in this because they're a patriotic facade for a kleptocratic regime. And nothing will change. And 20 years down the line, when Navalny um, turns into, the, into a corrupt, venal, schizophrenic bastard like Putin, and he will also be suffering from dementia. He's also going to decide to invade Ukraine, Poland, the Baltics, or start a war with China, because Russia is a wonderful place. And the only way that Russia could ever change would be if it lost an existential war like Germany lost in 1945, and that's impossible because Germany didn't have nuclear weapons. We can't conquer Russia. The second a NATO troop puts his foot on Russian soil, there are going to be nukes in there. So that goes back to the point, the issue of winning. How do you win against a nation that knows it's right and has nuclear weapons.
I never said it was going to be easy. <laughs> you, you know, this is... This um, is the depression phone. <laughs> Cast, sorry. I, I, no, yeah. I, I, no it, it's not because these these are the questions that these 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 have to be questions that are in the back of other people's minds, and no one's discussing it. No one's talking about it. They want to talk about tires, or they want to talk about coin, or they want to talk about strangulated. Um, you know, lines of communication from Belarus, but they don't actually NCOs, want to talk about NCOs are the new and, yeah, and, subject. And, and subject. But they didn't. But when it actually comes down to talking, you know, the, the the brass tacks of it, this is the brass tacks of it. And a lot of people have done very well out of this by talking about nonsense and, and nothingness, and not actually sort of focusing on well, what is. And and I, and I think it's quite important to discuss this. Sorry, sorry, Phil. Yeah. yeah. Let, let's just for a second assume that the peace has been made. How is peace going to be sustained post, in a post-genocidal environment? This is something I've actually... Sorry, go on. You know, in South Africa, after years and decades of racial issues, um, there was peace and reconciliation. But there wasn't the the scale of violence that has been set upon the Ukrainian people. Now, if you look at, I know you shouldn't be just looking at Yugoslavia all the time, but I go back to Yugoslavia because in a sense it's a similar situation where a nation that once was broken up into various parts, the resentment that still lingers from between Serbia and Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina is still palpable. It's still prominent. It never got resolved. And this situation between Russians and Ukrainians, I mean, just, just think about the poor people who are Russian and Ukrainian, mother and father. I mean, I, I have a friend who's father is Ukraine is Russian and his mother's Ukrainian. And he just goes through turmoil. Yeah. I just I, don't think how, how, how that is going to be resolved in the future. For, for me, um, I think that this is where I lose patience or, or not necessarily lose, lose patience, but simply don't get the the insights from many commentators um academic uh, or, or perhaps otherwise um on on this russian ukrainian war because i i i just i i'm struggling to understand the connection as to why so many people need to need to find a connection between this war and any other war. Um, ob obviously, you know, we are on Twitter and we see lots of analogies to World War Two. And I, I do sort of understand that up to a point, but I, I just think it is lazy analysis, uh, lazy insights or just poor insight, because for me, this war is unique. And it has the problems attached to it that I think are being teased out within this conversation, as all of you guys are, are saying. 
there are myriad, myriad difficulties in trying to understand in my uneducated, unacademic mind as to how that can happen. It's, it, it's a unique war in many facets for me. And on that basis, applying traditional historical means of ending this war are probably you know just going to be ineffective or irrelevant um i agree wholly i you know phil and i certainly discussed the you know the false equivalency that has been that there was rife and it was you know during the early stages we had everything from stalingrad to berlin in a very short period and then you know and i think i think it was you phil who said this war is like every war it's unique it's happening in the here and now to, to say it's like something even just five ten years ago it, it's incorrect to do so and that's not helped either in in our understanding in certain quarters by certain people of, of how to how to approach this you know you, when you if you just look and the, the big one was mariupol versus you know it's like stalingrad no it is nothing like you know why why did be what why do we sort of choose these reference points no it, it just completely doesn't make sense mariupol is mariupol it's happening now um see so yeah, i i get exceptionally frustrated by it i really do because it doesn't help our understanding and it doesn't help the critical thinking of how do we approach the subject and the difficulties and as phil has raised you know absolute peace and reconciliation we you know after this we're going to have to ramp it up beyond what the south africans did and they had a hell of a time doing it. 20 years yeah are, are the west or any any power who are actually going to intervene in what's happening now post-conflict are they ready for generational distress and dealing with that for a length of time but i think we will we it just we can't comprehend right now because we have as um as dustin said we have the like war so this has been spread on social media really like no other purely because it's on our you know in a lot of cases it's on our doorstep so now we have to we, we've let that pan we've let that genie out of the bottle now we've got to address that genie bottle and that's going to take time it's going to take money but you know how we have nothing in place whatsoever there have been so many really good suggestions about having something in place to deal with this but it's been poo-pooed by the big powers because money or they would lose somehow lose prestige on the international stage hmm. yeah i think it's mostly about military industrial complexes forcing issues there more than what they lose on the stage i think the fact that certain military nations can um, dump old equipment on other nations and then set the military industrial complex to building new kit. I think that's a major part of what's going on in the other nations. But if you just look at what's actually happening with this war, where we go from Dustin's light war to what it's become, why, why are people switching off? 
I think one of the major reasons why people are turning away from this war and, quote, losing interest is because they were promised so much by these cheap military analysts. Hmm. Here was going to be, if, if I'm not mistaken, two weeks into the war, some of these guys were prom promoting the Russians had won. Yeah. And then we came out of that weekend, I think it was the second week or the third week, I can't remember which, and Putin announced it was going to be the second phase. And everybody laughed at him and said it's going to be over in a week. Well, it wasn't over in a week. And flip-flop one and flip-flop two, you know who I'm talking about. Um, one's tires and one's admirals. These guys then flip-flopped into some other story and then flip-flopped into another story and then flip-flopped into... The problem is, with all of that, the audience has started to either stick with them or has gone away and said, this is ridiculous. The problem with that, of people losing interest, is it damages the Ukrainian cause. That what they've done is actually damaged and undermined the Ukrainian um, cause in this war. And that, for me, makes them criminals. Because not only have they misused their academic qualities, uh, qualifications with cheap strategic analysis, but they've let the people down who they're supposed to be supporting. That's unforgivable. And in the meanwhile, at the very heart of all of this is a humanitarian tragedy, which is huge. And that follows what Nick said. Where this is a war like we haven't seen before. Well, it is. It, it really is unique because in the space of probably the length of time of the Western campaign in 1940, where there was 1.7 million refugees, I think now we're up to 8 million refugees and climbing. And that's going back to what I said before about these concentrated, compact societies and municipalities where populations are so dense, when you put war to them, you have huge losses, not just in the casualties, not just in the local cultural things like museums and archives that have been wiped away with all of this, but millions of people's lives are destroyed. And what do we get? We get some jerk going on about tyres? Are you kidding me? And he started his tyres again the other week. I mean, I mean, more than anything, it's actually sick. <laughs> you've got this great, you've got piles of evidence of people being abused and treated in the most despicable form. And what? We get tires and missiles and all this other cheap shit. Excuse my French. We'll have to mark that out. <laughs> Yeah, I'm still angry. <laughs> Nick's comments have brought it out in me again. I'll have to behave myself. <laughs> no, it's not anger, it's passion, isn't it? Well, yeah, partially, yeah, it is angry, you know, you know, you're angry with it, but it is, it is the passion. And, and it's that passion which drives the discussions, especially here, you know, we're not, we're not like certain radio stations or whatever. It's talking heads trying to, to stir the mug. And that's far from it. But he's actually having these honest discussions about things. And, and part of me also thinks that, 
when, when people almost trivialize their their sort of discussion be it whether it's about the, the chain oil that they're using on the on the dry sumps of of whatever it's a for them it is a familiar familiar uh, reference point and so therefore they 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 have that you know that familiarity and they they feel they can sort of lay forth that's fine but it doesn't like you say it really does not help and it and it it is as frustrating as it is disappointing because that's not the way that this should be looking at you know let me tell you there's a parallel here with that all of that stuff that you're seeing now on twitter used to be on american television around about the time of the iraqi war you went on to, if you looked at american television in 2006 and i remember i was in dc at the time um if you watch the news it was some guy coming along saying how wonderful this missile is. It will smash through houses and Saddam Hussein is going to be killed and we can do this with these guns and we can do this with these tanks. And all of that nonsense that Fox News and those other news outlets pummeled into American society is what we're seeing now on Twitter. So it, it's the same format, only it's gone from main broadcast to social media. The problem is with it, it led to false promises. And the false promise of Iraq led to insurgency, an American failure, an allied failure, and then eventually chaos and horror. And in Afghanistan, it led to what happened in 2020 when, you know, when the retreat was so horrendous. And, and stitched into all of that is this counterinsurgency paradigm, which has failed, failed, and failed. And all of the people behind all of that, like that chap Elliot Cohn and these other chaps, are restoking re the war for their, to save their past. They got it wrong then, and they're hoping to get it right now. No, they're not hope. They're not hoping to get it right now. They're shoehorning their um, viewpoints and their analysis into the situation in Ukraine, and uh, uh, getting the facts coming out from Ukraine to fit their narratives relating to coin. And there's a disgusting coalition of. Uh, military historians, uh, defense analysts, and even the military taking part in this. Mm. For instance, the United States Marine Corps is going through a extremely controversial uh, transformation, which will see, uh, which has seen already the Marine Corps lose all its tanks and uh, be rebuilt into a force that sits on islands in the South China Sea and shoots missiles at Chinese uh, ships. And everything is built around this task of shooting missiles from islands to uh, Chinese ships. Uh, soldiers will just be security forces for the missileers. And uh, the Marines have lost all their tanks and they're losing uh, towed artillery and getting that replaced with 
highly accurate and devastating rocket artillery, which uses 10 times more uh, ammunition by weight, by ton. And a lot of uh, uh, marine rah-rahs have started going, well, look at Ukraine. This proves we're right. All those tanks are being destroyed uh, by heavily armed missileers. So we don't need tanks. Tanks are dead. Ukrainians are basically Marines. They're all Marines, and we're going to win this war. We're going to cyber, ninja, adapt, uh, win, uh, whatever, operational cycle. And that's just one element. And then we have uh, the Rusi boys who are also saying that the British uh, tactical, what, what the military um, strategy review, well, they actually got it all right when they said that tanks are useless and we should do more with less ninja, agile, cyber warriors. And we've got the historians who are helping with this. Historians like, uh, oh, is he a historian? Analysts or opinion editors like Cohen, who are just turning their old coin and uh, neoconservative bullshit. They're rehashing it, reformatting uh, their old tired analysis and opinion pieces for foreign policy, etc. And just sticking in Ukraine, where they had China or Pakistan or India previously into the text. Control R in Word, and look, my point is proven, and that's obscene. I, I just wanted to tie in. Um, just a, a thought that, that that's been at the back of my head for a little while, and uh, and I think it's sort of been repeated here in in perhaps our perception um, of, of this war. Um, why, why, does it, why does it fly potentially in the face of so many very popular um, uh, Twitter accounts, um, historians, analysis, analysts, as we say? And that's intrigued me as to why we are broadly singing from a very quite a different song sheet and sometimes I wonder whether it's um, perhaps other historians and analysts who make references back to um, easy references and analogies back to previous wars etc or, or, or items such as tyres or these Russian battalion tactical groups that have been employed in Ukraine perhaps that's just an easy perhaps that's just an easy crutch um to to substantiate a point of view or to to make sense of what is happening in in ukraine and perhaps that's an, an easy way for them to digest and and process their own thoughts and and to many people 
I can I can see that being popular. Um, but I, I take something such as one of the original su supposed original Russian um, objectives of this war, which was the denazification in inverted commas of Ukraine. And I think probably the majority of people or, you know, um, um, uh, commentators would quickly link that to the Azov uh, battalion um, around Mariupol, in particular as them being the, the most famous of, and, and or infamous of of the um, independent units that, 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 that manifested in 2014 and were then subsequently absorbed into the regular um, <coughs> Russian national, uh, Ukrainian National Guard. And, but for me, that whole concept, well, that term denazification has always been a far broader, broader brush. Um, let's assume it was, a, it was a legitimate objective by Putin and Russia that denazification in their view was, a, um, a, was, was a, an objective within um, the, their war against Ukraine. But do we know what, if that was true, accepting that's true, do we know what the Russian definition of denazification was? Um, I certainly don't. Um, I'm not sure many of us, but we can all apply our own theory about what denazification is. But for me, it was way beyond certain potentially right-wing nationalist militia groups that grew out of 2014 into a far more expansive term in my mind, which was simply the removal of Ukraine as a functioning state in whatever way, shape or form it, it manifested from a Russian point of view. And say the Russian, um, the initial Rus Russian offensive with this, um, with this supposed um, airborne uh, parachute division, uh, paratrooper division attack into the um, was it the Honestal, um airfield to the to the left of of, of Kiev, um, that was a highly contested action, um, and what appears to be uh, Ukraine forces were certainly given excellent intelligence from from the U.S. intelligence community on what was going to happen. If that had achieved, if that had achieved its Russian objective. And they've been able to take Kiev within whatever it was supposedly meant to be, 72 hours, three days. If that had beheaded the, uh, the, the Ukrainian um, state from a political perspective and had rendered itself as a surrender of the Ukrainian armed forces across the board, then that was a successful denazification of the country because they would have brought in who was the the previous um, they would have brought in the the, the previous um, Ukrainian uh, was it uh, Yakushenko um, but as that failed another form of denazification which was just as effective um, was essentially just a total and Ukrainian infrastructure, what 
ever, I, I think it's a movable feast from Russia in what they determined denazification to be. And as, phase, uh, as, as their first phase did not work, the second phase was simply just to in, yeah, create extensive uh, humanitarian refugee movement um, and destroy Ukrainian infrastructure. And whatever we take in terms of territory, we convert into um, our de facto Russian state and all the um, all the police um, and paramilitary violence that that would have bestowed upon those regions. So my question is, I don't think, or my point is, do we understand what denazification was? It was not a narrow concept in my in, in my view. It was a it was a moving feast, and what we have seen subsequently is still an effective way of Russia trying to, in inverted commas, denazify Ukraine. I'm not sure if that makes sense to you guys, but um, I think we get hung up on that was the basic that was the basic the essence of the Russian supposed Russian invasion from their perspective. And I still think they've achieved that up to a point. Given that this this sort of subject has, has developed quite nicely, um, and that it, it's it's also sort of exceptionally heavy going, um, do 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 would would it be great to have you all back to continue the discussion? Uh, in in part two of this on this particular theme, I, I think well, I think that would be worthwhile. There is a story, and there is literature about the the various Nazis that were identified by the Russians, and I think several guys have put threads out there. So. There is there is content that we could discuss, and we could we could discuss it a second time if you want. I, I think over you know sort of overall the, the the way that this this particular podcast has developed, um, and it's developed quite nicely. I feel I feel that the way the, the four of us are having a discussion that is. Um, I think I think the, the point is that Nick's correct. Oh yeah. There's absolutely no yeah. It's a strong observation about what what's actually happened. But, oh, yeah. but for us to discuss it with the stuff that's out there and the content that's available will take us another hour. Oh, oh easily. At easily. Least. <laughs> At least. Um Well, I you know, if you guys are happy, I'd sort of we will we'll sort of call it a day at this particular point. Um yeah, our listeners are probably opening their fifth beer or <laughs> <laughs> or the fifth day. Finishing off the bottle of <laughs> thinking dark thoughts. <laughs> I, I do get messages. <laughs> and I, I, did, I did say to somebody, it's all right, I can always rename it the Sunshine and Lollipop podcast if you yeah, like. You, you should give out the number to the National Suicide Helpline now. And... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> as always, um, thank you ever so much for joining me, uh, Phil, 
Dustin, um, and, and our guest uh, for today, Nick. It's been great having you on, and it's been a really good discussion, actually, I, I feel. It's been um, definitely one we I'd like to carry on. Um, so, so, guys, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Cheers. Been a, um, thanks for having me on. Not at all. Um, so, listen to wherever you are. Um, thanks for sort of, uh, bearing with us. Nice discussion has sort of taken place. Uh, we will be back to continue this this, this discussion, certainly. Yeah, next, next, next week we're going to do look and see Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> It's a new film. It's coming out in summer. <laughs> and on that note, wherever you are in the world, take care and thank you for joining us. Go well. <laughs>